Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. I'm going to read the scriptures for you this morning. Um, I'll be reading from Luke 22, 14 to 20. Uh, you can follow along in the back of the bulletin, or it should be up on the screen, hopefully. Um, and so it's under the section of the Last Supper. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This is God's word. Morning, church. If you're in junior high, you can head out uh, with Pastor Kate for your uh, time together this morning. Thanks for joining us for worship. Well, it's, uh, it's good to be back. Man, I, uh, last week I, uh, I missed the first Sunday I've ever missed in eight years uh, for sickness. And you got to know it was driving me crazy um, just to be there. But I, obviously I, I'm glad I had a, uh, a very loving father who called me early in the week and said, listen, if you can't make it, you can call me Saturday and I'll come. And I said, no, no, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And sure enough, uh, that happened. So we trust that God had a word for you through that. Um, but I'm so glad to be, to be back. Uh, we actually had a, had a date night thing that we were running last Sunday night, and so a bunch of couples come out and had invited people, and we'd had a speaker lined up to come and do that, uh, who's a relationship expert and a psychotherapist, and she had laryngitis and the flu. So I was talking to her Sunday afternoon, and while well, I was talking, she couldn't talk. And so then I hung up the phone, I called Kurt and, uh, and Rob, and I said, guys, I think, I think I'm coming to do your date night tonight. So... I said, don't worry, I'll shower and shave. Um, so I dragged my way there, and I'm thinking, what on earth am I going to say? Like, I don't, I, I've done, I'm not a psychotherapist, I'm not a relationship expert. I've done a bunch of premarital counseling, and so far, so good with the, all those couples. So many of you are here, so please, let's, uh, let's keep the clean record uh, going. And of course, I have my own relationship that I've been working on. We just passed 15 years. Uh, yeah. She agreed to 15 more, so this is good. Like, uh, I thought I shouldn't push it, so that was good. I thought to get that double the number. Um, it's, and it's funny, right, because when, you know, when I talk to couples as they're preparing for marriage, I often sort of reference our own relationship. And um, it's funny how much you learn about yourself that you didn't know until someone is living with you and suddenly there's like this mirror walking around uh, with you, right? And one of the things that we laughed about as we discovered early on in our relationship that when it comes to an argument, um, I'm going to come in assuming I'm right, and Jen's going to come in assuming she's wrong, which is a bad thing. It's just kind of how we realize that like, she's like, you never met an argument that you couldn't find your way out of, you know? And I kind of always think, well, don't worry, nothing will stick to me. Like, that's just kind of my, my uh, approach is I'm probably not wrong. And she will come in saying sort of, I probably am wrong. And we kind of laughed about this early on and began to work on it and realized, well, wow, that's kind of an issue for both of us, uh, something that actually needs to change. 
And it's one of those things that you realize and, and as you live together, and, and whether you're married or not, just with family or um, people in workplace, whatever, people you work closely with, you begin to bump up against each other, and the stuff, your faults, begin to come out in relationships, right? Um, and there's this instinctive reaction. Maybe some of you are more like me. You sort of drift to the, you know, defend, I, I'm right. Some of you may be sort of more like my wife will say, oh, I'm probably in the wrong, or, you know, I'm, I'm at fault, I'm, I'm sure, somehow, some way. Um, and, and, and we have those little sort of squabbles that come up time to time and little things that you become aware of. But um, there's also moments, and we've had a few of those in our relationship, where you realize that you've really screwed up. Like, you ever had that point where you come and suddenly someone confronts you with something and you're like, whoa, that's bad. Or maybe something you've been trying to hide for a while suddenly blows up and comes out in the open. Maybe your spouse or somebody close to you or a family member or maybe your boss or maybe someone who works for you comes and confronts you with something or you get some feedback or whatever and you realize, wow, I've, I kind of screwed up. And, and maybe, maybe it's just something you did in the moment, a poor choice, a bad judgment call, or maybe it's something systemic that you know, man, I, I just wish nobody would ever find that or they told me about this in my old job and now it's coming up again in my new job. Or it's come up before in relationships, but I thought I had this under control, and now this person's telling me the same thing. You ever had that? It's a horrible feeling, right? It's a sinking feeling. And what happens is when we, be, when we become aware, and this isn't just sort of a little mistake or whatever, but something we know that is about us, or something we, someone is saying to us we caused, or have been the author of, we are thrust into a search for justification. We don't think about that word necessarily, but what we're looking for, what instinctively we want in that moment is some, okay, what is going to justify me in this situation? What can I say that will um, put what I've done in a better light than it is? What, what can I attribute my actions to that had nothing to do with me, like something caused it? Or what can I say about the other person or about you that, that oh, well, that's why I did it, because I had to, because you did this? It's, a, it's, this, it's this, how can I, you know, if we want to be very simple about it, how can I feel better about myself in this moment? How, how can I make sure that, okay, I, yeah, I did this, I'm going to own it, but not totally own it because there were some other things at play. It's a search for justification. And, and sometimes we can, we can sort of find it and look for it from reasons, circumstances, environment, or we have enough, oh, they just don't know enough of the background because, you know, I had to do this because this led to this, this, this. Or sometimes you just say, well, yeah, yeah, well, you, you know, just kind of kick the spotlight away from us. Whenever we become aware of our shortcomings, our sin, our failures, our habits, our addictions, our things that have caught up with us, we are thrust into the search for justification. And let me tell you, and you know this already, it is a brutal way to try to live. Because what it means is either we begin to clothe ourselves with pride, right? Where, we're, where we have to say, well, no, like it's, it's got to be, the, the blame for this has to ultimately land somewhere other than me, which essentially means I'm sort of putting on a protective coating, a coat of pride. It's saying like, it couldn't be me or it was you or it was that. It was like, it's, it's not me. It's not me. I have to cast doubt in order to make myself look good or feel better about myself, I have to put someone below me. 
whether it's my boss or the person who works with me or the person I'm married to or my family member, my, my child or my parent or whatever it is, I, if I'm going to feel better, I have to make sure someone's below. So therefore, it leads to pride. And, and we've all seen this in our own lives and it's a lot easier to see in someone else. And it's a brutal way to live because it begins to destroy relationships, right? Pride, when we put it on, ultimately, because we have to, it pushes others away. It pushes others down. It, it begins to poison our relationships. And like I said, it's very easy to see in other people. It's what repels us from them. It what, it's what makes us not want to work with them. It, it makes us not want to have Thanksgiving dinner with them. It's, it's a thing that pushes us away. But, but equally, too, if we feel like, I can't get rid of this. I can't get the, you know, for like Lady Macbeth, I can't get the spot out. Then we begin to clothe ourselves with despair, shame, insecurity, self-loathing. And this is also a brutal way to live. This also destroys relationships. Right? Because oftentimes when I begin to feel terrible about myself, when I realize nobody can own this thing, it's sticking to me, I begin to feel ashamed. And when I feel ashamed, I want to withdraw from people. And I move into isolation. It pushes other people away. You've experienced this. You've also seen it in other people. That those who are constantly either clothing themselves with pride or clothing themselves with shame, it destroys relationships. There's a self-loathing, a despair. It is a brutal way to live. Pastor Tony reminded you that we are in the season of Lent. And this morning we celebrate communion, the communion table. <coughs> and one of the reasons we celebrate it is this, is that through what we celebrate at communion in a little while, in this bread and this cup, and what we celebrate at this time of year is that Jesus has offered us, and when I say us, each of us, personally, a different way to live. He has offered us a way out of the brutal life of self-justification, of finding, having to find justification ourselves, and this is why we celebrate it. The gospel stories, there's, there's four, we have four biographies of the life of Jesus, written from, in a sense, four different perspectives, some of them borrowing material from each other, some of them having their own material, and what we find is unique in a sense, or, or the same with each of the accounts, is the first half, in a sense, of the Gospels are about Jesus' life and his identity as the Messiah, which, which meant the anointed one, which was a loaded term for the Jewish people because it, what it meant for them was rescue, savior, in a sense of someone who is going to give us political, religious, economic freedom, is they were people who were ruled by Babylon, and then Persia, and then Alexander the Great, and the Greek Empire, and then ultimately Rome. And so they had lost their ethnic identity, and their religious identity, and their economic and sort of political independence as a people. Their glory was all gone, and Messiah was going to come and liberate them in every way. And so as Jesus is doing things that no one's ever done before, teaching and with authority that no one's ever had before, and loving with this kind of reckless, radical inclusivity that no one has before, he seems to be so anti-institutional, you know, because he's challenging the religious leaders and all of the, the carefully well-constructed social order. 
And they're beginning to believe, okay, this guy is going to be the one. And the first half, if you read it, certainly about Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first half of those Gospels are all about establishing Jesus' identity. And yet, at the point that we finally begin to realize, and they finally begin to realize, he's the one. Jesus begins to talk about using that authority, using that influence, and wearing that role and that title in a different way and towards a different path than they had ever imagined. He begins to talk about death. Not about exaltation, not about rule, not about overthrowing governments and religious order, but actually that they would get the better of him, that, they, that he would suffer and die at their hands. And so this story is beginning to move in a darker and darker place, and he's saying it's all going to happen in Jerusalem, and they're heading to Jerusalem, and the disciples are more and more confused because they're like, if you were going to save us, why are you talking like this? And in fact, if you're saying it's going to happen in Jerusalem, why do we keep moving towards there? And yet as they get into Jerusalem, they gather together in an upper room. Someone lends them the room in secret because nobody wants to be seen as someone who's a supporter of Jesus. And as they gather together, they gather together to have the Passover meal. And Dave read uh, that section for you. I want to read it again, just a, a portion. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And he took bread. He gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this is the cup, is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now for some of you, you've maybe read this passage before. It's familiar for others of you. The language is strange. What is Jesus talking about? Well, this was the Passover meal. And for 1,600 years, they had celebrated it a certain way. Because it always, only for those 1,600 years, meant one thing. It was a symbol, it was a reminder of the fact that they used to be slaves in Egypt as a people. And they had been slaves not just for one generation, not just for two generations, not just for three, but for four, which means uh, parents grew up as slaves who had children who were raised as slaves who had children who were raised as slaves. So an entire nation, in a sense, had lost its identity as a people and had become slaves to, at that time, the most powerful empire on earth, Egypt. They're not worshiping God anymore. The stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and that God had sort of petered out and all they were was slaves. And God hears their cries, sees their plight, and goes and rescues them and does for them what they could have never done for themselves. Does for them something that they didn't deserve. It's not that they had, were reading the holy book regularly. There was no synagogue that they went to to worship. There was no place of worship. It was seven days a week of brutal labor. You don't worship God as a slave. And so God comes and liberates them and saves them and rescues them and brings them out. And in a sense, they leave actually Egypt arms loaded up. They come out into the desert and God says, I'm going to give you a new identity. You've only been known as the people who work for the Egyptians. But now you're my people. You've had no God. You've had no identity. You've known the Egyptian gods or whatever. But now I want you to know I am your God. And who are you? I am the sovereign creator of heaven and earth. And I am also your father. This was what the Passover celebrated. And so they would, they would celebrate this meal. 1,600 years, every year they would gather together and they would reenact the story of God's saving them out of slavery. But listen to this. 
Okay, these were all Jewish people gathered around Jesus. 1,600 years they celebrated this way. And in fact, for the first couple of years of their time with Jesus, they would have celebrated just that way. And whoever hosted the meal followed a script. The script was the same in every Jewish household that they would bring the first cup and the second cup and different breads and, and herbs and how they would recount the story. And so Jesus as the host of the meal would have normally, and they would have heard him before a couple of times, rehearsed the script. And this time he changes the script. First he says, I've eagerly desired to eat this with you. And as they're going through the meal, he says, takes the bread and he says something they've never heard before. This is my body. For you. This cup, it's my blood poured out for you. We don't know what they were thinking, but they had to have been confused because usually they were confused. <laughs> right? Wait, what does he mean? Like, why is that his body? And why does he need to give it for us? What is happening in this moment? They didn't get it at the time, but they did later. And we know years later, the Apostle Paul explaining this to a church, a new church in Corinth, saying, this is what Jesus taught us, and we have been, this has been passed on. That Jesus in this moment was rescuing them. He was doing exactly what Messiah, the rescuer, had come to do, because Rome was not their enemy. Sin was. It was not political and economic enslavement that was killing them. It was sin. It was a condition that they had never been free from since the day human beings walked on the earth. And Jesus is saying, I'm rescuing you. I'm doing something just like God did for Israel that they could have never done for themselves. I am rescuing you from a slave master that you could never be free from yourself. I am doing something on your behalf, not because of anything you have done. You don't even understand what I'm doing. Even the betrayer is at the table at this moment. He's saying, this is my body for you. This is my blood poured out for you. You need someone to die for you. And what's so interesting, I think, in this moment was, it's, you know, when God rescued Israel, it was like he did it on behalf of a nation, but here, Jesus is at the table with 12 friends. And he's looking each of them in the eye when he says, for you, for you, for you. And so the church started a new tradition 2,000 years since that day, where we break bread. And whoever's serving says, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, on the same night he was betrayed, he broke the bread, and he gave it, and he said, this is my body. This is my blood. It is the Lord's Supper that we have rehearsed. It is a new rescue, a new story that we are meant to engage in and participate in. See, but the danger is this. We've been doing it for 2,000 years. And maybe some of you depending on the tradition you've grown up in, you've been taking the Lord's Supper, the communion, for a long time. Maybe it's been a part of something that was a part of your religious tradition, your church tradition. For some of you, maybe it's totally foreign. Maybe you don't even understand, well, what, what is this about? Is this, this is the symbol and the ritual stuff that I don't really get about church, I don't really connect with. 
The danger is that we would do this without doing what Jesus said to do when you do it, which is remember. When Jesus broke the bread and he gave the cup, he said to them, remember. And for the Jewish people, they would have heard that word. See, remember, in in sort of Western culture, we think about this calling to mind um, just some specific events or facts. That's what it means to remember. But for the Jewish people, even as they remembered through the Passover story, it was a ritual that was meant to help them put themselves into the story. In some cases, they were supposed to dress a certain way. They were supposed to dress the way that the people dressed on the night they left Egypt with sort of their clothes tucked into their belts so they could run fast, so they could move quickly. It was a reenactment. It was helping them to place themselves into the story to say, remember, you were slaves. It was meant to actually intersect the present. It wasn't just this exercise of remembering something that happened in the past. It was meant to put them in the moment and give them actually hope for the future. And so them doing a Passover at this point actually probably would have stung a little bit because they weren't free people anymore. They were slaves again. And yet they were meant to remember and put themselves in the story. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying to his disciples and to you and I as we take part. Squeeze yourself into the table between Peter and John. Let da Vinci paint you in to his portrait at the table with Jesus. Hands open saying, this is for me? Because it is for you right now. It is meant to actually do what Jesus said he came to do, which is to rescue you and I from the brutal life of self-justification. You see, what you are receiving from Jesus in this moment as you receive the communion is another way to live. Walter Wangen wrote a book called Reliving the Passion, and I I read it every year because it helps me understand the cross in new ways. And this is what he says, and it helps us understand how we have been rescued from the life of brutal self-justification. He says this, We sinners are so backwards that we try to justify ourselves by some condition which preceded the sin. Read this slowly. We try to justify ourselves by some condition which preceded the sin. Motives. Motives console us. That's why we want so badly to have them and know them. That's why we offer them to people. Well, this is why this happened. It's not my fault. He hit me first. I was just protecting myself. Don't blame me. My society was a bad influence on me. My parents set bad examples, abused me even, never disciplined me. Blame them. Hey, man, it's dog eat dog, and I'm only trying to survive. I can't help the way I am. God made me. God gave me appetites, right? We sinners are so backwards. We invert the true source of our justification. It isn't some preliminary cause, some motive before sin that justifies me, but rather the forgiveness of Christ, which meets my repentance after the sin. Right? Remembrance is repentance. To remember is to repent. It is the thing that rescues us from the brutal life of trying to justify ourselves. Now, I know repentance is not a happy word. You know, for some people, and I've heard many people say, it's like, oh, it's got baggage. I don't really like thinking about that. It sort of, it sort of has this connotation of browbeating and making myself bad and sort of saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Sometimes we think about repentance as like um, a promise to never do it again, right? 
That, that, you know, it's what we teach our kids. Like, say sorry, say you're never doing it again. Why? We're just making them liars. Why are we telling them to do that? Well, that's what we think repentance is. And so there we, we feel bad about it because, man, if I have to repent, I know I'm having to admit that, that I did something wrong. Of course, there's truth in that, but repentance is a beautiful word. It rescues us from the brutal life of having to justify ourselves. The word repentance actually means to turn around or to, to change your mind, to change the way you think. Repentance is to have a change of heart and a change of mind. And you know what it is, I believe, at its heart? Repentance is saying, I am turning away from a life that seeks to justify myself. I am rejecting a way of life that wants to put on pride or wants to put on self-loathing and insecurity to somehow justify myself, either to make myself pay for the things that I have done or to make sure I never have to pay because I never want to admit that I have done anything wrong. This is the brutal way to live. This is what we repent of. This is what we reject and say, I am not going to live my life trying to justify myself or failing to justify myself anymore. And I am turning to the table. I'm turning to Jesus. I am squeezing myself into the room with the 12 with my hands open saying, me too, I'm done. I'm done trying to clothe myself with pride, make sure nothing sticks to me. I'm done trying to pay for the things that I've done and feeling so bad about myself and thinking if I just loathe myself enough that somehow I'll get rid of this guilt. I'm done. (laughs) That's why repentance is a beautiful word. That's why the table is this beautiful thing, open to everyone where we place ourselves in the story, we see ourselves sitting with those around Jesus that Jesus looks in the eye and says, this is my body for you. This is my blood poured out for you. I have removed the stains that you could never get off your hands. And yet the only way through to that place of freedom is repentance. It is a turning. And in that sense, friends, it is not a one-time thing. Repentance must be a way of life. Why? Do you know why? Because self-justification is, is our default way of life. We do it every day. We instinctively think, how can I make sure I'm perfect today? And if I fail to be perfect, how can I make sure they know it wasn't me? Or how do I go to bed wearing this heavy burden of what all the things and the ways I've screwed up but haven't been able to make amends? Either way, The coat of pride or the coat of self-loathing is a heavy thing to wear. But it's something we put on every day. And that's why repentance is this daily throwing off, this daily rejection of that entire way of life that comes to Jesus and says, I got nothing in these hands, but they're ready to be filled. I'm bringing nothing to show you. Look what I've done. Either the spots that I can't can't get out are my perfect record. I'm I'm not just coming to this table with anything in my hands because this is about what you have done for me and I'm ready to receive it. Which is why repentance needs to be a way of life. I I wish we did communion every Sunday. You know, I remember when we first started, we have a bunch of our Catholic friends who they would always go to other churches after they came here because they're like, I feel like I haven't been to church if I haven't had the host. And I'm like, I never got it then, I get it now. There's something about this reminder and Jesus, almost when he says as often as you eat and drink, I don't think he was just meaning about communion because his whole life had been about having meals that this guy loved to eat, right? With everybody. Break bread with everybody. That Everyone said you shouldn't break bread with those people. It's, it's like Jesus was saying, as often as you gather and you break bread, the common elements of life, bread and wine, 
remember. As often as you break bread, seek repentance as the rescue from this brutal way of trying to justify yourself. And that's why it's a beautiful thing. The Apostle Paul, years later when he's talking to the church in Corinth, he says, as often as you do this, you are proclaiming his death. Every time you take it, you're preaching his death. Who are you preaching it to? Yourself. Right? Every time you take it, you remind yourself, I'm at the table too. I'm putting myself in the picture. I am rejecting this useless, brutal way of trying to justify myself. I'm preaching to myself. And we are proclaiming it to each other because we share one loaf. We Together. Yes, it's personal, but it's not private. It's communal. Together, right? We look each other in the eye. That's why, that's why we have you come forward so we who are serving can look you in the eye and say, we're with you. We also share this loaf. We also reject self-justification. This is not a place where certain people have it together and certain people don't. This is a place where we all come to the table saying, empty hands, but we're going to leave full. Come on, we need more amens in this church, man. Come on, this is too good. This is what we should rejoice in. You can scream your heads off at the NCAA, but people, this is way better news. That we come and say, this is what we have in common. We take this together. We're proclaiming it not only to ourselves, but to each other. (laughs) This is what we have in common. This is why I'm here today. Empty hands, squeezing myself in at the table, saying this is for me. I was thinking in this sense, the communion table, it's like the difference between my wedding album and my wedding ring. If I look at my wedding album, I can remember that day. Remember the more pepper than salt that's there now. I remember the weather, I remember what happened, I remember all that stuff. And I close the album because I only remember that day this ring. When I look at this ring, it doesn't remind me that day. It reminds me, as I say to people when I marry them, it's pure gold and it's an unbroken circle. It reminds me of a pure, unending love that I pledged to my wife. It reminds me when I'm traveling, when I'm on the road, and everybody else, I'm committed to one person for life. In that sense, it's a remembering with power. It's a remembering that isn't actually about the past, but it it rams its way into the present and gives me a vision for the future. Who am I? I'm a man devoted to serve another person for the rest of my life. That's what this reminds me of. No wedding album can do that for me, but the ring is different. It's about today and tomorrow. It's not so much about the past. See, the communion table is like that. It breaks its way in on our present right now, right where you are today. Receive it and lift up your head and take off those heavy clothes of pride and insecurity and self-loathing and fear and live a different way. It is so much about, as much if not more, about the present and the future. And so this morning, I'm going to invite the worship team up. We're going to do communion. And I guess here's what I want to say to you. In light of this, take bread and break bread. Take bread. For those of you that are here, come. 
Take this. It's for you. You coming here is putting yourself in the story saying, yep, I need this too. I need this now. You coming to the table is saying, yeah, I'm going to take bread instead of these heavy clothes that I put on every day of self-justification. I want to repent. I want to reject that way of life. I want to take something else from Jesus. And maybe some of you, it's going to be the first time you do it. And if you do, let me tell you what you're saying. You're saying to Jesus, I'm rejecting an old way of life. I don't want to live that way anymore. I want a new life. And if that's you, and if you're taking communion for the first time this morning, I'm just going to hang right up at the front after. Come talk to me. I'd love to pray with you. Maybe you're like, I don't totally get all of this, but I know I need that. Maybe some of you, you stopped taking it. Or maybe you've just been taking it, but you haven't been remembering. You've been living that old way of life, and every time we serve it, it's an opportunity to repent, to throw off, to change my mind about the way I've been thinking about myself and everybody around me. You know what happens when we do this, when you take bread? Humility begins to invade your life. The humble character of Jesus begins to take over, and that changes your relationships. It changes everything, which is why don't just take bread. Some of you need to break bread, and I said, with you know who. <laughs> There's somebody in your life, maybe. Not, maybe, not maybe all of you, but some of you, that there's been conflict, there's been pain, and, and you've been trying to clothe yourself with pride and justification and why you needed to, whatever. Or maybe you've just been clothing yourself with like self-loathing and you've just withdrawn from that. And you need to actually break bread with them too and proclaim his death. And so maybe there's just someone in your life that you need to make it right with. And that's what the scriptures say. Whenever you take this, make sure you are taking it in mind with those with whom you share. And if there's something between you or something that's gone wrong, make it right. Because that's what it means to take bread and break bread. I want to bless you with an experience of the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is able to take off the heavy coat of self-justification that we wear. He is, by His power, able to remove it this is the rescue we cannot do for ourselves, but in his name and by his power, he is glad, willing, able to do. So I just want to bless you with a, an experience of that just coming off today. And instead, what you are receiving is free life in Christ, and that you would live out of that freedom and of that humility. Did you receive that? Amen. Amen.